Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, channel pros, and welcome to Channel Journeys. Thank you for listening. This week, we have a very special guest, a lifetime channel pro who went from channel chief to CEO of a channel software company that he founded. And as if that wasn't enough, he decided to wear a third hat and now is the leading channel analyst at Forrester Research. Jay McBain is well known for his deep analysis, insights, and predictions, and this podcast is loaded with all three. One point that really stood out the most for me was his prediction around entering the third stage of automation. And Jay just talks about the first stage starting around 20 years ago, which was sales automation. The second stage starting about 10 years ago was marketing automation. And Jay believes the third stage is channel automation. And just as every chief revenue officer must have CRM expertise, and every chief marketing officer today needs to have marketing automation experience, I got to wondering if channel automation is going to propel channel chiefs into a chief channel officer role. Well, that's just one of the many nuggets of interesting information in today's podcast. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Here we go. Jay McBain, welcome to Channel Journeys, our podcast on the channel for channel professionals. Great to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this interview with you, Jay. We've known each other for a number of years now. I spoke with you, I think, at the BAPTI Channel Focus event last time, but you always have great insights and fun stories, so I've been looking forward to this. Excellent. Me too. So tell me, you're, now you're working for Forrester. You've done a lot of different things. One of the things I want to do on this podcast is interview people from different walks of life in the channel, and you're my first analyst. And what's it like working for Forrester as their, their channel pro? Well, I think it's great. And if I step back, I've been in the channel for 25 years and I've only been working for 25 years. So my first job really out of college and I've never kind of left the channel. So I had a chance to work for a big vendor, be a channel chief, had the chance to work for a channel software company as a CEO. And uh, all along that way, I've always written a blog for decades on channel stuff and I tend to count and very quantitative. So I always muse on, on numbers and things like that. So when I was getting done with my previous job, people were saying that there's actually companies who pay for, for you to do what you like to do, which is research, talk to customers, keynote events. There's companies that actually pay for that. And I thought of that and an analyst is, is a fantastic job for that. It really is a great fit for you for the things that I've seen you do over the years and the things that you've told me about and how you approach things from a from a very analytical point of view, whether you're analyzing the channel or, or analyzing channel connectors, you've always taken that approach and, and had very interesting things to say about the state of the channel. Yeah, it's almost like being a sponge. Every time you see, let's say, 500 channel chiefs get nominated on a magazine, I'm the guy that goes behind the scenes and reads their entire LinkedIn and finds out how many of them are male or female, where they live, how much education they have, how they got the jobs they did, where they came from. And, and I'll end up after all of that publishing how to be a channel chief. And 
every time I see stuff like that, I that's the way I think is how do I count it all up? I, I looked at channel software companies a couple of weeks ago and there's 106 of them. And I made an infographic on the channel tech stack. And not only did I add the 106 across six categories, but I started to count their revenue and their people and all the M&A activity and you know, probably a dozen different things about it, which, which makes it more interesting, I think, to, to people to get that level of information at a macro level. It is very interesting. You ask like three or four more layers of questions beneath what we typically think about when we, we see something. Where did that come from? Have you always been this inquisitive? I've always been somewhat analytical and always somewhat technical. So when I was 11, my mom was a computer teacher and brought home an Apple II. I threw away the games within minutes and taught myself how to program basic. But my first program was really built a Quicken tool or a Microsoft money type of tool. And when I was 11 years old, I started to track every dollar that I made and where I spent it. So back then, being a Canadian, it was on hockey cards and Slurpees. And and from that day to this day, I have almost 35 years of transactional data. Every dollar I've ever spent or earned is tracked where and what and which categories. And from that day on, every piece of paper then became scanned. So I've got a on my hard drive every piece of paper I've come across from my first book report to my latest uh, pay stub and then digital pictures. I digitized our family photos back to the fifties, my parents and grandparents, and then obviously have them all categorized by day, by month, by year. And just one by one, every facet of my life became somewhat digitized and analytical. And I, I think that's the way much to my wife's chagrin. That's the way I look at the world. Man, obviously, from the from the age of 11, at least. So other kids are doing their lemonade stand and you're analyzing sales. That's right. <laughs> That's fantastic. So before the age of the cloud, did you have like a massive server in your house to store all this data? Yeah, I've always had storage. And I always tell people because you think about it today and a PDF file is, is pretty sizable. And back then it was floppy disks. And storage was really expensive, like a five and a quarter floppy disk was pretty expensive. But file sizes have been linear since the time I was 11. So think of 35 years have been linear with the size of the file. So back then, pictures, digital pictures were so grainy and so low resolution that they were just 10 kilobytes. Yeah. Where if you take a picture on your iPhone or Android today, they're four to six to eight megabytes. So today we need to go buy a two, three terabyte drive to hold our pictures and our files. Where back then we were doing it on floppy disks. So it's been linear and I haven't spent a lot of money and I have big Google Drive accounts in the cloud and I, iCloud accounts and I've got a couple terabyte drives sitting behind my computer here for, for dual storage. But my entire life and every document, every picture, every dollar, everything, amounts to about one terabyte today. That's not that much, really. No, it's not too bad. And then obviously music and movies and things on top of that, but we'll talk about that another time. I just bought my wife a, a new computer and I said, so Katie, you've got a terabyte of storage. And she looked at me kind of blankly and said, so what does that mean? That's right. <laughs> Is that good or bad? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. You're in good shape. So your channel journey, you got this programming bug early on, then you went into 
IBM doing some sales, some channel sales, direct sales, channel chief at Lenovo. You started your own company. Did Jay at 11 have this mapped out or how far in advance were you plotting your career? I didn't. And I, I don't think anyone as they're a teenager and things like that know exactly where, where they're going to end up. And I don't think any channel chief or anyone out in the channel kind of looked back and said, I really want to be in indirect sales. Uh, as opposed to being a fireman or a doctor or astronaut or something like that. But uh, I definitely think, and, I, and I've studied the, the type of personalities and psychology that makes really good channel people. And actually, the Harvard Business Review wrote a really good article a couple of years ago on what it takes to be a good channel person. And I thought it was really interesting because this is a question we ask, our, ask ourselves a lot. But they basically made the conclusion that well, those people that are really good in direct sales, see a bear, shoot a bear, rip somebody out by the throat type of focus, make really bad channel chiefs. Mm -hmm. And channel chiefs look more like CEOs. They're general managers. The average channel program has 90 different components, nine zero. And they're juggling all 90 of those things and tweaking and fine tuning them while putting out fires, which pop up by the hour while managing all of these things takes a lot of different effort and the channel itself is 80% of the time a silo. So you'll have channel marketing, channel finance, channel operations, channel sales. So you look like a CEO. You've got all of your divisions for this silo that you're running. The marketing department and the sales department aren't really helping you. you you've built it in-house. So that's the a CEO looking channel chief as opposed to grabbing your best direct seller or your VP of sales and pushing them over into direct sales tends to be a recipe for disaster. Yeah, we've seen that happen over and over again, and it and usually doesn't work out very well for, for anyone. Yeah, and there's a flip side to it, and there's a negative side as well. And for the years I spent at IBM and Lenovo, which was about 17 years, there was this reputation that those who couldn't cut it in direct sales and were nice people and you wanted to see them at the Christmas party and everything else, you'd go and push them into channel sales because they quote unquote can't screw up there. And what ends up happening is these people are good mediators and they have usually neutral personalities and they want everyone to get along. And it was really big in Canada because in Canada, we want everybody to get along. But those are the people that kind of went over to channel sales, had the reputation of people who couldn't cut it. And I think a little bit of that personality or, or psychology, which I call the Rodney Dangerfield effect, is this, this idea that you don't get any respect in the channel and you're behind other departments in terms of getting investments and funding and, and attention. And indirect sales drive 75% of the world across all 27 industries. It's the biggest industry in terms of getting things to market. And somehow we all have this... Um, complex about yes. not being out in front. Yeah, the channel complex. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So do you see that changing with the, the shifts in buyer behavior, the shifts in the channel, the the more increased importance of the channel for businesses? Are I you do. seeing any shift? Yeah. And that's the biggest part of my research this year, which I called it the third stage. Mm -hmm. And if you look at galactically, every industry around the world 20 years ago, sales changed in a big way. So CRM became a thing. And back then there was 300 CRM companies. 
and we know the winners, Salesforce, Dynamics, et cetera, five winners that came out of those 300 companies. But 20 years ago, every company invested in CRM. To become a VP of sales, you had to have a CRM expertise and a process and a workflow. Mm-hmm. And it just became part of the thing. And we, start, we stopped talking about, remember we used to say, you're born a salesperson? That went yeah. away. Sales became much more scientific and it was, it was good. 10 years ago, so 10 years after CRM and 10 years ago, it was marketing automation. So back then there was about 150 marketing automation companies and we know the five winners now, Marketo, Pardot, Eloqua, Acton, HubSpot. And to become a VP of marketing or a CMO, you had to have a marketing automation stack and a process and everything else. And 10 years ago, we used to say and joke around 50% of marketing dollars are wasted. You just don't know which 50%. And today you don't hear jokes like that anymore because it's become scientific. Mm-hmm. So to become a VP of marketing, you're highly analytical, the levers and dials, and you've got it down to a science. So all that time, and with 75% of the world going indirectly, all the investments been on direct sales and direct marketing. So the third stage, and I believe 2018 was the kickoff of this, is when companies will realize this and, and realize that all of their investments, while good, haven't paved the last mile for the customer. And all this, in the last 10 years, we've had a shift where the customer is now very different. 65% of all tech decisions, for example, are made by line of business executives now. These line of business executives are very different than CIOs or IT departments of the past. And like consumers, they spend 70% of their time before ever talking to somebody. And so the entire indirect selling and marketing motion has changed And companies have been so focused on the other side of the silo that I think they've lost ground in terms of realizing how important this is. And I think for the next 10 years, this is going to be focused on paving that last mile. Yeah, I sure hope so, Jay. There there has been a, a real shortage in that type of technology and automation for channel chiefs and their teams to be using. And there are a lot of great companies out there. I had Gary Morris on. He was my first podcast talking about the tools that he's developed and a lot more people that I want to interview on this show and talk about the solutions that they're bringing out and, and make sure our listeners are fully aware. They probably are. It's more their executive sponsors that need to be better aware of, of what's out there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to promote this each time I, I speak about 50 times a year. And again, I've got the blog and social channels and stuff, but Two weeks ago, I published the 2019 channel software stack showing 106 companies, including Gary's, that are really driving this future automation, future amplification of of the channel, making programs that are self-service, flexible, adaptable, recognizing new types of channel partners that are not, for example, transactional, which I call shadow channels. And they're doing some great work. So I I published this, it's got over 10,000 downloads now, the infographic. So we're starting to, and actually today on forester.com, it's the number one featured insight, which in the channel world, kind of the Rodney Dangerfield effect, that's that's a big thing. It's a big pat on the back that big analyst firms are starting to see this third stage as well. And it's really exciting. That is exciting. That's going to bring more investment from the vendors to buy the technology and certainly more 
probably private equity investment as well yeah. into these companies. And I get a lot of calls from venture capital and private equity. So Wall Street is is waking up to this. So when I published the Channel Tech Stack last year, and there's about 100 companies, 14% of them were acquired. Hmm. And this will happen again this year. So you can see that not only is there consolidation and M&A activity out there in the channel themselves, managed service providers and VARs, but it's happening at their channel vendors. It's happening at their vendor vendors. I mean, every week we have a blockbuster acquisition, IBM and Red Hat or Marketo and Adobe or Symantec. I mean, every week we're getting hit by a big one. So there's a lot of money. There's, there's a lot of cash flow that's being repatriated. And I think 2019 will be an area of big M&A activity across the channel. Well, it's never boring. The great thing about this industry, there's always something new happening. Absolutely. So if we could switch tracks a little bit and talk about who is Jay from a personal standpoint, because I know you've got a lot of interesting stories of things that you've done. I'm curious, what is the, or where is the most interesting place that you've lived in or, or visited in your, your career? Wow, that's a big question. So I've I've moved eight times. The most recent time was actually my wife taking a new position, not me. So I've got to live across Canada and then in North Carolina, in New York, and now in Southern Florida. So I'm a Canadian kind of on vacation every day. So it's, it's beautiful. We're heavy travelers on vacation. So I've been to 85 countries on vacation. And the goal was to hit 100. And we're almost there. But the idea, when you look at the world, which has about 200 countries, there are 100 easy con- countries to go to in, in terms of turmoil and, and, and travel and, and everything else. And the next 50 are what I'll say is probably yellow colored in terms of something's going on or you have to be more aware of your surroundings or do things in a different way. And then at any one time, there's 50 companies that are kind of 50 countries that are kind of red where they're in a state of war, civil war, there's something very serious going on, like today in the Middle East or in the Congo in Africa. And so during my lifetime, though, these come and go. So they become safe for a while, and then, then they don't. And I want to maybe hit every country over time as, as they ebb and flow into, into safety. Wow. So you've hit 85 of them so far. When, when do you hit 100? Have you got it mapped out? Yeah. So uh, we try to hit uh, five to 10 countries. It, we're not the travelers and we're a member of these groups that are what we'll call passport stamp type of groups. Mm-hmm. And there's literally people that will fly into the four corners of, of four countries and stamp their foot into four and check it off. I've got rules that you got to stay in a hotel. You got to stay more than one day and you got to walk the back alleys and eat street meat. And I would do, I did a lot of them on rollerblades. So covered 30 or 40 miles in a day. Really? And not just the top 10 things that you want to see out of the book, but the the hundred things on every other street and try to pick up more of the culture. So it, it's not one of these races that let's just see if we can stamp our foot in this many countries and get this many stamps. But how many cultures can we suck in? And the idea behind it, I wrote a blog it's probably 10 years ago now called Red Red Bull Rollerblades and Red, Red Bull. And interestingly enough, it became a page one hit for Red Bull. And so they sponsored me, <laughs> which was actually kind of funny. But 
I had this idea because I was a Canadian, I knew how to skate. And I'd travel through Europe, for example, and hit 14 countries in rapid succession. But I'd, I'd park my car on the outskirts of town, let's say Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And I would start rollerblading the circular city and I would go on every street and then reach the middle and then rollerblade my way back out again. And it would take 8, 10, 12 hours or whatever. But I would see everything. So I didn't have to go and map out what I wanted to see because I was on literally every street. I could go to Manhattan and start at Battery Park in the morning and go crisscross, not up and down, but crisscross Manhattan and end at 120th north of Central Park by the end of the day. But when I went back to my list, did I see this? Did I see this? Well, of course I saw it because I was on every single street in Manhattan. Yeah. And rollerblades was better than a bicycle in terms of mobility and allowed me to use sidewalks and everything else. And it was just fast. It was as fast as a bicycle when I got up to speed. And it was just a way to different way to see it. Is your wife in on this rollerblade travel? She's not a rollerblader, but we do hit as just as many countries and we just walk a ton. Probably we <laughs> grab 30 to 40,000 steps on our Fitbits when we're there. That's awesome. So of all these places you visited, is there an adventure that stands out the most that, that, that you like to think about? Yeah, I think there's a lot. And one of the ideas of doing all of this was where do we go back and spend time? Mm-hmm. And there's been surprises, that, places that have surprised me where my expectations were higher than the result. Example was Tokyo. I, I'm a car guy, so I've watched all these movies like Tokyo Drift, Fast and Furious. And I, I just envisioned every street in Japan being like Times Square all digital, all electronic, all futuristic and everything else. And mm-hmm. it just didn't reach my expectation because I think it's that one corner that's just replicated in every movie. So, I mean, there's places that I really enjoyed going to, but I don't think I would go back and spend a month. But then there are places like Prague and Italy. We love Cambodia. I mean, there's a number of places in Africa. I mean, so there are places that once we retire... I'd love to go do Airbnb and instead of spending a couple of days, go spend a couple of months. Oh, that's on our list too. Like go spend a month in Tuscany, learn some Italian, just hang out there and get to know the, the, the culture a bit. Absolutely. So, that, that's, so what, that's, why the, that's why the travel is to go figure out what to do next. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you guys must have fun planning your next vacation. Yeah. You got an MBA. That was a really interesting blog that you wrote. What what inspired you? Is that something that you had wanted to do for a while to get that under your belt? It is. So I, I joke with people that I've got an MBA in the channel because I took an MBA in entrepreneurship and family business and mm-hmm. with 600,000 channel partners. It's basically a study in family business in most cases and definitely in entrepreneurship. So I wanted to do that, and it was something that I wanted to do for quite a while. My wife, Michelle, has also taken an MBA at Manhattan College. I took mine from LSU. And uh, yeah, it was kind of the kind of the right time. I managed a lot of people through my IBM days and Lenovo days, and I would always, always tell people that the best done MBA is probably 10 years after your undergrad, mm-hmm. where you can work a while. And when you're doing the case studies and when you're working with teams and when you're actually doing your MBA, it's you're relating it to everyday things. 
anyone that I would interview that had an MBA attached to their undergrad, that they just went from one to the next, I discounted the MBA because it was just another two years of college, for example. It wasn't experiential. And uh, so I always kind of thought, at 10 years, I'll go back. And then the, the culture of IBM, IBM sent you to Harvard and other places for education. So there was so much leadership training and everything else that I felt an MBA would actually be secondary to that. And then doing the startup, there was obviously no time during that phase. And now being an analyst, I thought that was the perfect time to, to go and get that master's degree. And you did it in the evenings while you were working full time. Yeah. So, you know, it was kind of the, the blog was, was funny because Michelle, my wife had open heart surgery this year and we have, I have four kids, four girls, two are in college and two are in diapers. And obviously a pretty heavy travel schedule across 150 channel events. I, I go to about 50 of them and obviously a good hard 12 to 14 hour workday. So how do you go do all that? The lucky thing is we're night people. So by the time the kids actually get to sleep 10 o'clock at night or 11, we would start our MBA work. And sometimes that would be till two in the morning. Sometimes it'd be a full all nighter, work till five or six and then go shower and then start the day. But it was very much a lesson in understanding the system, understanding each course and what it takes and doing all the investigative work to actually figure out how to do your best while mate balancing that with life and ended up working pretty good. And it took you one year. Is that right? It took me 10 months. So that 10 was another months. big part of the LSU program is that it, you could accelerate it. And it was, it was just this fascinating thing where it was, it was 10 courses and you could take two every seven weeks. So I did that. I doubled up over five semesters, five times seven is 35 weeks. And it was actually very inexpensive as well. Forrester actually paid for it, but each course was, wasn't much more than $1,200 or something like that. So you could do an end to end MBA for like $12,000. Wow. And so even somebody that doesn't have their company paying for it could actually afford something like this, as opposed to Michelle has taken a Manhattan college, which is many, many more times that amount. Yes. Yes. So we, you were talking about channel chiefs being like a CEO. So for people that are starting their career in the channel, they're working their way up. Would you recommend this path that they get an MBA? I would, except for after 10 years. If you're starting your path in the channel, you want to pick up as much channel sales and channel marketing experience as you can. And while you're doing that, you want to look at different things. So if you can get some different geographic experience, I had a national strategy role for a year or two, which was actually really cool. And obviously worked in a branch office. I worked with SMB, I worked with mid-market, I worked with enterprise, government, healthcare, education. So got to move around geography, got to move some industries, and that's really critical. And got to have some sales experience, obviously, marketing, channel account manager type of, type of work. That's where you want to spend your first 10 years, picking up mm -hmm. as much as you can. Because managing CDW for a company is so much different than managing an SMB channel through 31 communities. Yeah. And if you're able to move, let's say, every 18 months to two years and spend your first five or six gigs moving around, you're going to, when you become channel chief, 
you're going to have a much better foundation in your skills than if you just went and did one thing for 10 years. At that point, getting an MBA is is interesting because you bring in other viewpoints, you you study cases. And in my case, I I was studying channel related types of things where my professors would actually reach out to me based on speeches they were doing. And it was an interchange of information and they were growing as, as much as I was growing. So it was, it was interesting in that respect. So definitely recommend it, but after 10 years. And then as you become a channel chief, you've got a solid foundation, both educationally and, of course, experientially. Yeah, I think that's good advice, Jay. I did my MBA after three years, and it really wasn't enough. I had been in the same industry, in the oil industry, and, and really did it to, to shift my career into something new. So it seemed like the timing was good. But in terms of relating to those case studies, I could have benefited. In fact, it, it almost makes me want to do it again. Yeah, and you can go take a, nif- a different thing as an MBA and, and, and kind of change the focus around a bit. But I, I think it's really interesting. The people you meet, obviously, while you do it become lifelong friends. And gone are the days where... HR will hire an MBA before they'll, after they'll hire just an undergrad. And they don't rank it that way anymore, and which is good. There's people that are really, really book smart that I've met that don't do well in channel roles. And then there's people that don't have a degree and barely finished high school that are some of the best channel chiefs on the planet. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's not an indicator or a correlation to, to getting a bigger or better channel job it should be viewed intrinsically as opposed to something that you're checking off your resume. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm curious, Jay. So now that you've had a lot more experience, you've gotten your MBA, you've done a lot of different things. You've seen the shifts in the channel. As you look back to you back when you were channel chief at Lenovo, what do you think you would do different today if you were put back in a channel chief role than what you were doing back then? I would probably look at the channel in much more of a broader way. We spent almost three decades now looking at a channel as a transactional force, a reseller channel, somebody who's from a go-to-market, routes-to-market point of view, are the people that actually transact. And what I don't think I understood well enough back then is the chain of influence. And not enough study was done back then in terms of what a buying journey looks like for a customer. And as they're going through the journey, who are they touching? And these are peer networks, they're social networks, obviously Google searches. But think of the amount of webinars, podcasts, newsletters, magazine articles. Think, think of the 30 different things that are affecting them along the way. And think of as they go through their cycle, who as part of that cycle, in my case, would be supporting Lenovo or bringing up Lenovo at the right time in the conversation. And I I think we looked at the reseller channel as the end of journey kind of kind of owner or single throat to choke and stuff like that. But it never was. And now we're learning how how broad that journey is for customers. And the best channel programs today are not programs at all. They're actually ecosystems. Mm -hmm. They understand that there's resellers and VARs and MSPs, but they also understand that there's system integrators and ISVs, born in the cloud companies, ecosystem partners, there's startups. There's this wide array of different companies 
and then media organizations and analysts and associations and all these different things, I'm going to say, surrounding the customer. And in that 70% where they never talk to somebody, they're still absolutely devouring information every day. And all of this, to me, rolls up to a number of different communities that they're tapping into, depending on their industry and their vocation and their, and their geography and everything else. But it's also to a set of super connectors that seem to show up everywhere. If you go across the 31 communities, for example, in the MSP world, I published this list of 100 people that just happen to be on stage. They're, they're on the board of advisors. They are a contributor to the magazine. They're talking on your podcast. They're doing a webinar. And they cover the market so well. And just somehow in their gut, they understand that with as decentralized as the channel is, you can't just hang on to one magazine or hang on to one association. It's a very broad approach. And these are the super connectors, by the way, if I dial back 10 years, who if I reached out to and got the endorsements from earlier, Lenovo ended up becoming the number one PC company past HP and Dell. But we could have done it probably sooner if we reached that broader audience faster. Yeah, what you're talking about reminds me of the conversation I had on an earlier interview with, with Rich Blakeman, who wrote the Hybrid Sales Channel. And he was talking about channel strategy. It all starts with the customer. And looking at that customer, you talk about the buyer's journey and who are they talking to along the way who become those influencers and really potential channel partners. Yeah, so we're pushing companies now, like you do have a channel program and it's got 90 different components to it. It's got a gold, silver, bronze tiering. And that's great. And that's what you've built. But the parallel to that now is a non-transacting channel. So there's influencers, there's advocates, there's affiliates, there's alliances. There's so many non-transacting partners that you're not paying a front-end margin, back-end margin, traditional MDF dollars to, but do have a real impact in front of the customer. And there are different methods to bring them on board. You're not going to onboard them the same way you do a transacting partner, but you're going to bring them on board in, in some way or another, and you're going to co-sell with them and co-market with them, and you might send them different ways. going to be the opportunity you create with the customer. And I'll say that there's this magical ecosystem number. Some companies get it. Like for example, Salesforce, every time they stand up, they'll say for every dollar we get, the channel gets $4.14. Here are the 17 things the channel does to get it. Install, implement, integrate, secure, comply, business continuity, and the other thing. Here is the margins, 40 to 75% on each of those line items. Now being at the table with us, it doesn't really make sense for you to resell Salesforce. 73% of our customers, which is a real number, would prefer to buy from a marketplace like AppExchange or buy direct from us. It doesn't matter. Why would you be chasing money at 10 or 20% margin when you can be deploying that resource at 75% margin doing the integration work? You don't lose the customer. Nobody owns a customer anymore. There is no single throat to choke anymore. There is no trusted advisor anymore. It's these groups of people that get advantaged by your product. And when they understand that, it's not about owning the transaction or the money flow. 
It's about owning that opportunity that your product creates with that customer. And that's where the winning's happening now. With, with these huge shifts in the market, in the, the way people are buying, shifts in the channel and new opportunities, is there a, a major mistake that you think vendors are making today or an opportunity that they're missing? Yeah, the major mistake that they're making is they, they see it as linear, that somehow these new partners and all this new action has to funnel in through this channel program that they've built for years and years and years. So somehow all these influencer networks are going to come in as bronze partners. Some sort of long tail strategy to nurture them. Like it, it's garbage. Mm -hmm. If it's a if it's a reselling transactional partner, yes, bring them in as bronze and incent them to become silver, like you always have for thirty seven years. However, in this new world, it, it's not that far away from like a Kim Kardashian on Instagram or a YouTube star. It's closer to that than it is a, a channel program. Is how, what makes these people tick? What are the economics in terms of what they do? How do you earn an endorsement? How do you leverage these people to get into their tribes and get endorsed along the way? And it's not linear. It's some other celestial stars and moon aligning type of thing now that you have to handle at scale. And if you somehow think that it's all going to just magically come into your channel program and people are going to come to your portal and people are going to sign up to your terms and conditions and your MDF funds and your deal registrations, I mean, it's not happening and it won't happen. These are just different genetically engineered groups <laughs> of people that will not work in that framework. And they'll never go to a vendor's page and click on the partner tab at the top. Because they don't even know that they're partners. Like they don't think of themselves as that way. It makes me wonder, with all these new ways of reaching out and communicating, is that an opportunity for companies to be hiring millennials or Gen Ys or whatever they're called who grew up with this, who are, who are more used to reaching out and building communities in this way? Yeah, absolutely. And that is happening. By the year 2024, 75% of the channel will be millennials. And by the way, that's not hard. I mean, millennials today are 36 and under. By 2024, you've got another six years on top of that. So it'll be 42 years and, and younger. So a bigger portion of the audience. But what's going to happen is millennials are going to move from influencer roles today to becoming the core decision makers. And today, the average age of a channel chief is in their late 40s. And what you're going to start to see is is a blend of channel chiefs that are that are millennials, that are digital natives. And I think they're going to understand what a YouTube star looks like in the business world, which I call a super connector, and, and how to leverage that at scale. And I think that's going to be a benefit to vendors who, um, who really look at the, the different ranks of employees. Yeah, it's going to be great to see what new ideas come come bringing in the the maybe Uberization or Airbnb of the channel. Who knows what might come out? Yeah, absolutely. And the gig so, the, the gig economy. Yeah, I, I think you hit it there. Is this idea everything's becoming the gig economy? I just downloaded a car wash app and got my car washed within 15 minutes this weekend. Really good experience, and didn't have to move it out of my driveway. But every basically every service becomes an Uber-like service where 
channel professionals, channel partners themselves start participating in this gig economy and they start adding their skills to projects as opposed to taking over a project and owning the project, which doesn't happen anymore. You come in at the security level or the compliance level or whatever the key part is that, for example, the digital agency that's sitting in the room or the marketing people sitting in the room don't have that skill and don't want to be thrown in jail at the end of the project. So they're very motivated for you to come in and do that piece of the project properly. Mm -hmm. So is there anything that I didn't ask you, Jay, that, that you wanted to talk about? Well, I think the future of the channel is, is really, really strong. First of all, every company in every industry is chasing into technology. So digital transformation equals business transformation. Every company in every industry is becoming more technical. We just crossed the threshold where every person inside every company. So when I talked about those line of business executives, sales, marketing, operations, finance, HR, are now spending 51% of their time on tech. So no longer, now their day job has become their night job. And with everyone in tech and everyone, every service company in every industry chasing into tech as well, it's gonna be this really, really interesting collage of, of companies and, and buying journeys and, and everything else. But on top of that, we got this layer of emerging tech from, and I sit on the, the emerging technology board at, at CompTIA, and you've got Internet of Things and automation and AI, virtual reality and blockchain and all these really interesting technologies coming down the pike. And we're starting to see the first stepping stones. RPA, robotic process automation, is the first stepping stone now to AI. It's not something you just go sell Watson to a hospital. It's now something that the channel can actually jump onto, work, and it's nothing to do with robots, for example. It's, it's workflows and business logic. And the fastest growing software, enterprise software company in history is not Microsoft. It's not Salesforce. It's not Slack. It's an RPA company called UiPath is the fastest to grow to 100 million. Hmm. And so here's, a, here's an opportunity of emerging tech that you could look at your 17% margins in your managed services part of your business and then look at the 75 to 100% margins that RPA partners are getting right now. And it's a new practice that every company needs and you can be on the ground floor. So that's going to change things. Marketplaces, I think, are going to accelerate, which is going to decelerate resell. So when I said 70% of partners are looking for an M&A activity in the next five years, a lot of the resale component, getting margin from vendors, is going to go away. And it's going to be replaced by these downstream services where, as I mentioned, ecosystems become so important. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to understand and, and get hyper-specialized to take advantage. You have to pick one of the 297 sub-industries, a specific line of business, geography, size, sector, segment, or a part of the technology stack. You're going to have to go find an intersection of those five things and brand yourself, build yourself some IP, go to GoDaddy, get a URL for it, become a software company on the marketplace. And, uh, and take advantage of, of those last mile opportunities. I think that partners and vendors, but partners have to learn how to partner with other partners 
vendors have to look at programs that accelerate partnering with partnering. Because again, we're dealing with permutations and combinations that we've never had before. And the world, the future isn't linear. And then finally, it's this third stage. I think the next 10 years is going to be about indirect sales. I think there's going to be five big winners that come out of that 106 companies on my tech stack. And 10 years from now, we'll talk about this as the age of indirect sales investment. And I think there's opportunities abound for everyone in this industry, no matter what your role. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's a very exciting time to be in the industry. It's, it's not your grandmother's channel anymore. There's a lot more going on today. Absolutely. Excellent, Jay. Well, thank you so much for uh, for the time to chat with you. I think we could go on for a couple more hours with a lot more insight. Maybe that's a future podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to help. Thank you so much. All right. Excellent. Thanks again. Well, now you can see why Jay is in such high demand, speaking almost weekly at various channel, vendor, and partner events. Jay has been on a very interesting channel journey himself and is helping all of us chart a course through a very exciting but challenging period of channel transformation. Check out the show notes for more information on Jay, including a link to his infographic on channel automation and to his fun blogs on visiting 85 countries and another one on getting an MBA in 10 months. Join me next week on Channel Journeys for an interview with another well-known channel pro. Until then, make yours a great channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, Please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.